an undercurrent of it, actually, despite all the fun I was having, was a fear that I'd never find my path in life. I knew all the things I didn't want to do, all the maps that had been laid out for me by my, my uh, school and my teachers and my parents didn't suit me. But I had no idea what I was going to do. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Generosity has been on my mind, and it's something I'd rather not think about. It worries me. It disturbs me. Often, when the conversation turns toward generosity, I want to change the subject. I want to change the subject because it makes me uncomfortable. It seems what is about to ensue is some kind of honor competition, and I brace for some humble bragging that's going to make me feel agitated. I'm afraid that I'm not going to measure up, and I'm going to be seen as selfish and self-serving that I'm going to fall short. It will be clear to all that I don't have enough because, well, if I did, then I'd be more generous. Generosity has too many hidden landmines. Having a conversation about it, for me, it's like trying to have a relationship with someone who will not face their shadows and traumas. There's just too many times I'm going to trip a trigger. I have trouble with discussions on generosity, partly because I think the term is ill-defined. We think we know what we're talking about, but I suspect if we sat down and asked a dozen people to define generosity, we just might surprisingly discover that we're not all talking about the same thing. When I think of generosity, a few things come to mind. Having enough, so I've got the ability to give to others, or not having enough, but giving to others anyway, or fear of receiving from others because it puts me in the one down position of having received Or sometimes I think of it as a competitive way of demonstrating value or worth. There is implicit status in being, air quotes here, generous. It puts you in the one-up position. This power dynamic always makes me edgy. It's often used for manipulation. We see this principle of reciprocity where someone will give you something knowing full well that you'll be obligated to give something back in some way. Sneaky salespeople do this all the time. Whole internet empires have been built on freemium as a way to get you to use the service. It's easy to mistake free with generous, and that will lead you into a world of hurt or Facebook. There is a lot we could discuss about generosity, and you'll likely hear me touch back on this again in the near future as it deeply has my attention at this moment in time. Marketing mensch Seth Godin says, generosity is not about lowering your prices. It's about doing the hard, emotional work of creating something of value. Jewish culture holds that there are various levels of giving and generosity, the lowest form being where both the giver and the receiver are aware of each other in the exchange, the middle level being where the giver knows who is received, but the receiver doesn't know who the giver is. And then there's the highest level of generosity, where neither the giver nor the receiver are aware of each other. Today, I'll just leave you with the question, what do you think about generosity? What comes to mind? You can send me a message from the website. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. 
Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. In a moment, we'll be getting into a conversation on Yangsheng, the nourishment of life with Peter Dedman. It's impossible to be within the world of Chinese medicine and not have heard of Peter's name. He's contributed so much to our profession over the years and is such a good example of how service can drive entrepreneurship. 
Over the years, I've come to have deep respect for those entrepreneurs who saw something that our world needed and stepped up to fill that gap. Let's get into this conversation with Peter Dedman. Peter Dedman, welcome to Geological. It's good to be here. So I don't think there's anyone who has studied acupuncture that isn't familiar with the name Dedman. Because it's all over the acupuncture <laughs> books. <laughs> Actually, when I was in school, that book was just coming out. We were very excited right. about it. Well, it is a bit of a paradox to have a surname like Deadman in the field of health. But, you know, I'm used to it. I know it's kind of a pirate name, isn't it? You know, there's a really interesting potential origin of this name. There's a conventional one. It's just a derivation of a an old English uh, place name. But more interesting one is that it comes from a word called Dodman, which was the name for an early surveyor who held two sticks. We've got a famous chalk carving in the south of England of a male figure holding two long sticks. These were thought to trace ley lines over hills when they wanted to connect places from one side to the other side of the hill, they'd use the sticks. So a Dodman was a primitive, almost an earth acupuncturist, actually. Yes. Tracking the meridians of the earth. Exactly. That's my preferred <laughs> explanation. <laughs> yeah. I kind of like the pirate name myself. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, the pirates are actually, well, the pirates are quite interesting. They're actually a very democratic crowd. I mean, you know, there's all the, you know, things that we see in Hollywood about, you know, these, you know, vicious, rapacious characters, but but a lot of them were just looking to make a living, you know, just a little bit outside the law. They were sort of the black marketeers. They were looking at markets and they were fiercely democratic and they, and they shared in, in, in the take. It's good to know. Cool stuff. We had an exhibit here in St. Louis a few years ago that went into that. It was quite Well, curious. like the word terrorist, you know, it depends who's defining it. That's I right. Mean, you know, the British Navy were pirates. They used to attack and steal from foreign ships, but of course they never considered themselves to be pirates. So. No, they were flying yeah. under the, you know, Union Jack. So they were not pirates. Exactly. <laughs> Unless somebody was getting their ship looted, in which case those damn British pirates. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you have been a longtime entrepreneur, long time. I remember in, in a previous conversation we had, I think you were working in, in like Whole Foods and Health Foods and, and then into Chinese medicine. You've given us the Journal of Chinese Medicine, you know, all the books that you've done. Where does your inspiration come from for doing these kinds of things, this kind of work? That's a big question, obviously. Actually, entrepreneur, I am an entrepreneur, it's true, but many people would think of the definition of an entrepreneur as somebody who is primarily out to make money. Whereas I would I say- I think that definition is wrong. Yeah, I don't feel like that at all. Mm -hmm. I've, I've always purely and utterly followed my enthusiasms and my interests. And luckily, most of them have been successful. Not all of them, but so in that sense, I'm an entrepreneur. It's funny, I've just been writing my memoirs, so soon to be published. And, you know, it's, it's quite interesting looking back to see the kind of pattern and arc to life. So 
I was brought up in a very radical family, a anti-establishment, socialist, even communist family, actually. So I never basically accepted the idea of the status quo. I was always encouraged to challenge the status quo. You were a pirate. I was a pirate, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was at that particular age, you know, when the 60s came along and the kind of revolution of the 60s, the turnaround in cultural revolution of the 60s. I went to an exhibition in London a couple of years ago called Talking About Revolution, which was a history of the radical movements of the 60s. And even though I lived through them, I was astonished how radical they were. They were far, far more radical than anything that's going on now. And it was a period of time that gave rise to feminism, environmentalism, black rights, the rise of the British working class into popular culture, epitomized by people like the Beatles and so on. You know, everything was an upheaval. I think there was also, what went with that, there was a lot of interest in different cultures, particularly Far Eastern cultures. Yeah, be seemed to be part of the gestalt of the time. So those were good reasons for me to orientate myself differently, perhaps. And then I spent a few very kind of wild, adventurous, fun, rather decadent years, <laughs> doing lots of traveling. Which is a good thing to do when you're young. Great. It was great. It, you know, the Chinese say you will kai in chair, right? It'll open your world eyes. Yeah. There's no other education quite like that. I, I absolutely agree. And it was a great time to travel. I mean, this was before mass tourism. You know, I was so lucky. Uh, even a few years later, the experience would have been different. You know, I could travel down through Spain to places that are now massive tourist spots and they were just little fishing villages then so you know it was special but the end result of that rather reckless living was I got sick I got a bad case of hepatitis and I kind of reached the end of that period of my life an undercurrent of it actually despite all the fun I was having was a fear that I'd never find my path in life I knew all the things I didn't want to do, all the maps that had been laid out for me by my my, uh, school and my teachers and my parents didn't suit me. I had no idea what I was going to do. So uh, it was always this kind of mild anxiety underneath all this. When I got sick, very sick actually, I discovered macrobiotics, which was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, Zen macrobiotics was a... Macrobiotics means big life. So it was an approach to diet based on Japanese traditional medicine. It was the the movement that brought brown rice and miso and seaweeds and natural foods to the West, really. Or it was one of the moves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm remembering that now. Yeah. As far as Britain was concerned, one part of that natural food movement came from China, from the British Raj. But this came from, you know, further east, from Japan, and it was based on yin-yang. So I really got into that kind of thinking, and I discovered my first 
aim or purpose, which was to set up first a, a natural food macrobiotic restaurant and then a shop selling foods, organic and natural foods, in 1971, so very much ahead of its time, which meant <laughs> a real economic struggle. You know, sometimes we had five customers a day, but, you know. You were on the cutting edge. Cutting edge, yeah. yeah. So it was a bit of a struggle. And we set up a bakery and we set up a warehouse. That business is still going. When I quit, soon after I quit, we um, set it up as a workers' cooperative and donated the business to the co-op. So now it's a pretty big operation. It employs about 150 people and um, ships, natural foods all over United Kingdom, big mover in the organic food scene. I did that for a few years, and then I got I got to a point where I, for all the challenge, and it was, you know, the fun, it was a hippie thing, really, you know, so it was, it was good fun always. Hard, very, very hard work. Yes, hard but, work. But we played at it as well. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could really put your heart into it. It was heart, heart and sweat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, wait, isn't sweat the fluid of the heart? Isn't that what we say in Chinese medicine? Yes, I think we do, don't we? I think we do. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Got to the point where I realized I didn't want to be a shopkeeper for the rest of my life. And I went through a, a period, which has happened to me a few times, of uncertainty, where I knew I had to give up something, but I wasn't sure what was going to come next. And I've learned to embrace that, to embrace that feeling of being at sea without a, without an anchor for a while, to create the space. You know, one thing, I do a lot of qigong, and I'm very interested in the idea that when we create space in the body, qi arises in the empty space. It's a bit like that. We allow ourselves to be uncertain in the face, in the hope that something will stir and rise up from the depths. That's how it's happened for me. It's never been a kind of thought process or an intellectual process. It's hit me from below, <laughs> if you like. And that was acupuncture. I'll be an acupuncturist. Because through macrobiotics, I'd encountered Japanese shiatsu, and I'd started to learn the meridians a bit and some of the, some of the points for massage and so on. So that's what set me on the path. It's amazing to me how I don't think we throw anything away in our life. We can go from season to season in our life. We can go from one thing to another. But whatever path we walk, it it stays with us in a certain way. You know, I hear you talk about that you didn't know what you wanted to do, but you certainly knew what you didn't want to do. And man, that rings a bell for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm cut from that same cloth. Yeah. And in some ways, that's really hard, especially when it looks like everybody around you knows what they're doing. And it's hard when society says, here's a path that works for everybody else. How come it's not working for you? What's wrong with you, pal? Yeah. And in the thing about being an entrepreneur, it's funny. I, I did a lot of work with my hands when I was younger. I worked in arts and crafts. I did some glass blowing. 
And it, much to the chagrin of my family, because they wanted me to work with my head, not my hands. But I remember like eking out a living as a hippie glassblower. And my grandmother, what, what she would tell her friends is, oh, my grandson, I'm so proud of him. He's an entrepreneur. And at that moment in my life, I hated it. I was like, no, I'm not. But here's what I discovered about being an entrepreneur. First of all, if you want to make money, if you're actually interested in making money, and that's your main goal, don't be an entrepreneur. It's a really bad idea because over 80% of entrepreneurial enterprises, they fail. Yep. Most entrepreneurs don't do it for the money. You look at any really brilliant entrepreneur, they're doing it because it's something they love. It's something they're interested in. It's something they're curious about. They've got an itch they want to scratch, and that's what they go and do. And there's one more thing that characterizes entrepreneurs. Certainly it characterized me, and I would expect it characterize you. I realized early on I never, ever wanted to work for anybody else. Oh, my God, I was terrible at it. I had so many jobs, <laughs> short-term jobs, <laughs> that I either quit or got fired from. Because I just couldn't bear being told what to do. I'm with you, brother. So there was really there wasn't much choice to except to be an entrepreneur. I, I was really fortunate in a way, and and this didn't come into my consciousness really until recently. But I grew up in a family that didn't have jobs. My family was a family of shopkeepers and small business people. The people I grew up around. They had businesses, or as my grandpa would say, business. We had businesses, but they didn't really have jobs. And I didn't realize that that put a kind of an imprint on me. And, and for that, I'm deeply grateful. So you started off with food. That takes you to Chinese medicine. How'd the publishing come in? Okay. So I went to acupuncture school in 1975. It was a really tough time to study acupuncture because I would say at the time there were maybe three, maybe four books in English on acupuncture total. And as you can imagine, they were pretty poor. So to study and learn was really difficult. It wasn't really till the final year that I was in college that China suddenly opened up or began to open up and material about, you know, more more reliable material about Chinese medicine started to come in. In fact, one of the treasures for us was a stack of notes of Ted Kapchuk's Chinese medicine lectures. He'd studied in Macau. So he basically studied similar syllabus to the Chinese medicine schools in Macau. He'd come back to the States and was lecturing. And of course, some student naturally published the notes and they spread <laughs> spread like wildfire spread like wildfire in fact mm -hmm. when ted discovered that i had used them to write my final year thesis he he came to he came to britain he was ready to murder me <laughs> but but i um you know i soon persuaded him that it was done with the best of intentions so after i qualified from my entrepreneurial role in the food business. I was accustomed to the idea of having ideas and doing them. And I realized that there was this terrible, terrible lack of information on Chinese medicine in English. 
even then, even in, so, so this was 1979, even then there was really nothing. So I decided to... Isn't that when Eastland first published their acupuncture book? Shanghai Comprehensive Text. Yes. It came out around then, but wonderful. You know, I loved that book. It was very pragmatic, but it has no Chinese medicine theory in it. It's a, it's a clinical book. So I decided to start a journal, Journal of Chinese Medicine. So that was my first venture in publishing. Well, actually, that's not true. And I was... Uh, a few years before that, I published a, a macrobiotic cookbook. So I had little experience of writing and publishing. Um, the journal was an attempt to fill this void, this educational void. Yep, there, and there's that entrepreneur again, right? There's a void. There's something yep. I can do. Yeah. And, you know, if you look back at the early issues, we wrote articles about the most very, very basic of Chinese medicine theory and so on, because uh, there was nowhere else to discover what wind meant or what damp meant or what yin deficiency meant or, or so on. So that was the first publishing venture, yeah. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. You know, it's funny. When I think about publishing companies, especially like the one that, that you started up, especially like Eastland Press, I think about a world that didn't have the internet yet. And, and it was people that were gathering information, mostly because of their own interest. Right, they were scratching their own itch, but it also created the material that, like, the next generation of people coming up would be able to use to learn with. Just to give it perspective, I mean, in those early days of trying to learn Chinese medicine, we were hungry. We were really, really hungry for information, and we valued it incredibly highly. So when, for me personally, when I came across stuff that I thought, right, I can tell by the, the smell of this, the sound of it, the flavor of it, that this is the real McCoy, you know, I was ecstatic and I absorbed it. And that led to a desire to spread, to spread the information. It's the kind of opposite of what happens now. If you study Chinese medicine now, you know, a bit like if you study Western medicine, 
you drown in <laughs> books and articles and podcasts and you know it's overwhelming so just a complete complete mirror opposite really so as you say a lot of those early publishing ventures were driven by our our yearning for knowledge and our desire to spread it when we found it yeah it's a curious thing to me how things run in cycles like this right i mean a few minutes ago we were talking about like you know being young and you know a bit footloose to see what's out in the world and then in another phase of life you really want to consolidate things you know and at some point in life you're you're taking in what you can get from others to you know to learn or to improve yourself or something and then at another point that comes back out you know is teaching or publishing you know helping others along we there are these cycle i mean we know this from chinese medicine there are these cycles of generation and decline yeah we have the opposite problem these days you want information about anything in Chinese medicine, just about there's so many good resources in English. And of course, if you can read some Chinese, well, there's a treasure house that goes back thousands of years. It's quite remarkable. You know, in this digital age, there's no lack of information. There's an excess of information about everything. What becomes more and more important then is the filtering system. Yes. The quality control. I've just uh, passed the Journal of Chinese Medicine on. So it's an X thing for me. After 41, 42 years. But I'd say in the later years, we very much saw our role as being that quality control system. We, we devaluate articles and material we received. We decide what we felt was really valuable and worthwhile. We'd edit what does Matt Damon say in Mars? I'm going to science the hell out of it. <laughs> How are you going to survive? <laughs> How are you going to survive? They say, I'm going to science the hell out of it. So we'd edit the hell out of it. You know, we'd really put a lot of work in and, and then go, this is what we think is the good stuff. So that role of not gatekeeper, that sounds a bit controlling, but gatekeeping is a useful function. Right. On, on one hand, yeah, you're using it. We're going to let these people in. We're, gonna, we're not going to let those people in. Right. You can think about the bouncer at a club. Right. That's one kind of gatekeeper. But the other is exactly what you're talking about. It's a filter. We're going to bring in the stuff that really, you know, bring in the jing essence of something. And we're also going to take it through a process of refinement so that it's useful and and worth passing on it's worth taking the time to read it and it has a trustworthiness about it exactly so you have created and successfully passed along a number of different businesses and i love thinking about that i, I and i certainly know earlier in my life i was thinking well i got to figure out a way to make money and as long as i'm making money great good for that and then we'll let the future sort of take care of itself but certainly as I go along in time, and especially if you create anything that has value to it, the thing takes on a life of its own. And then it's not about you. It's about that thing. You kind of need to husband it, nurture it and nourish it, and make sure that it gets on its own legs. That applies to something, certainly. So giving things up 
is it's quite difficult. Letting things go is quite difficult. When I let go of my role in the food business, Infinity Foods, there was a period it was difficult and painful. When I recently let go of the journal, that was quite hard. I actually felt grief. There had been so much part of my life for you know, decades, really, that to go, right, I'm done with that now. It's time to pass it on. That was painful. I think probably the hardest, the one that took me the longest to come around to was letting go of my Chinese medicine practice, which I gave up about roughly 10 years ago after 30 years. So that was hard. I knew it was the time to stop practicing treating patients but it took me quite a long time to bite the bullet and accept the decision and to let go. Yeah. Well, grief sounds appropriate. In, in that kind of situation, grief sounds completely appropriate. What was it that was catching your attention, especially with your acupuncture practice, that let you know, hmm, time for a change? Well, it was a host of factors. First of all, I'd been kind of pushing myself for years. You know, I had a busy practice. I had a very busy teaching career. I was traveling all over the world. I had a family. I was editing the journal. And I just finished an eight-year project to write a manual of acupuncture, which took a lot of time. And I just joined a band. See. wait a minute wait a minute that's like three different lifetimes yeah i know i know how do you you pull that off i don't know you know in a way the band was the decider really i was suddenly hanging out with musicians who were a feckless lot and don't go to bed till three in the morning you know and we go off playing gigs and drive back in the middle of the night and it just it kind of just triggered a few things So one was I wanted a break from something. I wanted to let things go a bit. And somehow the practice was the one that I was most willing to let go because, to be honest, I was tired of it. There's an English word, I don't know if you're familiar with it, vocation. We talk about vocation for the church. We used to talk about vocation for the church or vocation for medicine. Now, I have friends and colleagues who have a vocation for medicine and will practice medicine probably till their last breath. It's utterly natural for them. I actually went into Chinese medicine because, primarily because I loved the philosophy, the theory. I loved learning Chinese medicine. It was almost a surprise to me when I when I finished studying I was suddenly sitting in a room all day treating sick people. I'd almost forgotten that that's what it involved. Yeah. Oh, and, and I get her. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I loved, I pretty much loved everything about it. But it got to the point when I suddenly found myself, you know, I don't want to shock you, but somebody would start telling me their problem. And they start telling me about their hip pain. And I'd be asking the same questions. Oh, where do you feel it? And when is it worse? And when is it better? And so on. And there'd be a voice inside my head going, I don't want to listen to this anymore. 
I just, you know, I've run out of compassion for these for these kind of issues. What I see looking back now, because I talked about letting go of things, even precious things, and about the empty space it creates. But then, trusting the process, something arises in the empty space. So in the empty space, after I stopped practicing, I discovered that actually I was much more interested in health education, in yangsheng, not in, you know, as the, as the Neijing says, not in treating disease after it's arisen, but helping prevent it in the first place. So that, it's like a lot of things came together. By that time, I was doing a lot of qigong. I was still very passionate about the health, the transformative effect of good diet. I'd gone through a concentrated period of therapy, so I understood much more about the impact of our emotional state on our health and well-being. These were the things I was more interested in. So I slowly stopped. After I stopped practicing, I spent, alongside my rock and roll career, I started studying, and because I was already still teaching a lot, I started to teach less acupuncture. I felt increasingly it's not right to teach acupuncture once I stopped practicing. You know, it's a disconnect, you know. So... Yeah, it sounds like you've always fueled yourself on a sense of authentic inquiry. Yeah, authentic is a, a word I've, you know, I, it's really important to me. So I started to think more about Yangcheng, nourishment of life. I started to read more, study more. I started to teach. Initially, it was like, oh, here's a one-hour lecture on Yangcheng. You know, then it grew to half a day. Then it grew to a day. Then it grew to a whole weekend or even a three-day workshop because I was just accumulating information all the time and drawing on my own experience. And then I reached the point, I thought, well, there's a book here which was tentative for a while. The way it happened is I did a, a two-year creative writing course at my local university. So I started writing a lot of fiction. I wrote a lot of short stories, and then I wrote a novel, a young adult novel, which I was quite excited about. That took me about a year to write. And I finished the novel, and I just knew there was something not quite right with it. You know, I finally found the person, took me a while, the person who could tell me what was wrong with it. And it required a big change. And that kind of knocked me back. So rather than tackle the big, complete rewrite of this novel, I did a displacement activity and decided to write the Yangshang book. So it's kind of, it's almost like an avoidance of going back to my novel was to write this book called Live Well, Live Long. But don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I, I was passionate about writing it and I loved the whole process. I mean, it meant, for example, that I could go to the wonderful British Library. I don't know whether you have anything equivalent. You're in the States, right? Yes. Yeah. So the British Library is a wonderful institution that somehow they've not managed to kill <laughs> in their in the years of austerity, if once you get a reader's card, you can request, you go online now, you request 
any book that's ever been published in the English language. And you can turn up at the library a couple of days later, you can order up to a dozen books, go to one of the old reading rooms. Yeah, oh, the old reading rooms. And they just say, here are your books, sir. So I was able to, you know, I don't read Chinese, but I was able to research, you know, everything that had been written in English on Yangcheng, on Taoist lifestyle, on, and, and so on. Plus, what was really important to me was to also investigate Yangcheng from the scientific perspective. Because I find a lot of new age thinking, I find a lot of ungrounded acupuncture thinking very frustrating because it's it's unquestioned, it's not rooted, it's fanciful often, it's fake news. <laughs> excuse, excuse the term, especially a lot of new age thinking. So I felt it was really important both yeah, to... Well, it's, it's believing some story in your head and you're looking for a confirmation bias that what I want to be true is true, which gets us into all kinds of trouble eventually. Well, we know we can see that going on unfolding at this very moment in um, in politics, both in the United States and in my country. In or even just in what people decide they're going to eat. Yeah. Bad diets. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I mean, you know, it's a slight digression, but I was initially very shocked. Now I've become very despondent about how the world of complementary medicine, some, a surprising number of people in the world of complementary medicine and what we loosely call the new age, have signed up to and promoted conspiracy theories about all kinds of things. They've allied themselves with the far right in a lot of their political attitudes and and so on. I, I'm desperately sad about that. So anyway, coming back to the book, I was really keen both that what I wrote about the Chinese health tradition was accurate. It reflected what was actually said and written and that we could look at that through the lens of um, modern lifestyle research and just evaluate it. And of course, what was exciting and remarkable and no surprise to me was how far ahead of the time, how far ahead of its time the Chinese tradition was and how the West, Western lifestyle science is an infant, really. It's in its infancy compared to, to that tradition. So you scienced the hell out of it. Wow. I haven't got a science background. I did my best. Yeah. Science. <laughs> no, but I mean, just taking that, yeah. taking that perspective of, and this is what I love about science. This is one of the things I truly love about science. Number one, it's based on observation. You start with observation, what's happening in the world. Number two, you come up with some ideas about what does that mean and what might that mean? And then you go and you test it. And I think the true scientist is every bit as happy to get a no as a yes to their idea because it's not about attachment to the results. It's about the inquiry. And then, and then it takes something. It takes the fortitude. And we, we deal with this all the time in clinic when things don't go well. The fortitude to go, mm, that was a good idea, not proven out by reality. I was wrong. What might that mean? And now what? And how you hang 
in that kind of empty space of, oh, I'm back to uncertainty and not knowing. Well, those words you just uttered could have been spoken by me word for word. I completely agree with you. Um, I'd add two things to it. One is that the Taoists were scientists in the sense that they observed nature without uh, preconceived beliefs. If you compare that to religion, which was very, very, very slow to accommodate science because it didn't ally with their preconceived beliefs. You know, Galileo was nearly executed. The Taoists observed without a belief system, and according, not everybody agrees, but according to the great sinologist, Joseph Needham, that's a big contributor to why early Chinese science was the most advanced in the world at its time. Early Chinese astronomy, mechanics, uh, physics, and medicine, and inventions, sometimes hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years before the West. So that's we come from a tradition of scientists, our medicine. And the second thing is this wonderful thing that, as you said, a scientist is as happy to be, be almost as happy to be proved wrong as to be proved right, because what they're passionate about is finding truth. That lesson, tough as it may be, can apply to our whole lives. Every attitude we have, every belief we have, we have to be willing to change and adapt in the light of new information. That makes life an adventure. And to me, that's part of Yang Chang because the essence, one of, you know, one of the strands of Yang Chang is change and adaptability, going with the flow. When we become stuck physically, mentally, emotionally, that starts to kill us. That's the, you know, the partner of death, as the Tao Te Ching would say. Flexibility, softness, that's the partner of life. So the art of, you know, Yang Chang, of course, is interested in successful aging. The art of successful aging is to be willing to change all the time. And as soon as we become stagnant, then we decline. So you bring up something that for me is very poignant, which is we all have these belief systems. We all have these stories. We got this idea how the universe works, often because it got us to where we are. We've survived with a certain story. But most solutions we find in life are contain the seed of our next big problem, which is why we're constantly going through these evolutions and we're constantly changing and having to come to this place. And, and, and we've touched on it a couple of times in this conversation. I think about you in that reading room at the library with these books. That's a big, empty space. And we come to these places in our life where we're between, we're like a belief system is kind of unraveling. I'm curious to know how you recognize that you're at one of those moments where the beliefs and the ideas and the structures that have gotten you to where you are aren't going to get you to where you're going next. And now you're in that, that space of uncertainty that you've talked about. That, that can be so uncomfortable. And I suspect you were just saying it's, it's a part of Yangsheng to be able to create that space in the body and then something arises. 
But it's that creating that space, I think, is a huge challenge for most of us. Yeah, but let's let's remind ourselves of the yin and yang of it, because I would also say that there are fundamentals in my life that I am sure of. <laughs> they don't, things, you know, there are basic fundamentals that I know about myself and about life that I don't feel the need to to change. I mean, I love I love practicing qigong. How I practice it might change. You know, I might adapt and go, oh, that's, that's not what I want to do anymore. I want to do it this way. But Qigong is fundamental to me. Being in nature is fundamental. Growing vegetables is fundamental. Listening to music is fundamental. Building and maintaining friendships is fundamental. Laughing. I don't really have doubt about those. The rest of the stuff, that's all right. But, I, you know, I suppose along with being willing to be flexible and adaptable and change, we also do build, as long as we've lived like that, we build wisdom. You know, I'm in my 70s now. I do treasure that. I feel the things I feel and know about life that, that have come from that process. And now they're kind of fairly solid. So it's a combination of keeping. It's a bit like, I'll tell you what it's like. In Qigong, we sometimes say, lower body like a mountain, upper body like a cloud. We build a foundation, a strong foundation, and the, the cloud can waft and, and flow over the mountaintop in a soft and flexible way. So it's yin and yang. So I'd see it like that rather than suggesting that Everything is constantly in upheaval and everything is unanchored. I, w I don't feel that. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles it's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Everything is change. There absolutely is that. But hearing you, it's not a but, it's an and. And hearing you talk about that there are certain fundamentals and you know they're true, they're root, they're core. There's something unchanging within the world of change. It's something, I'm going to call it of essence. Yep. It's knowing your essence. Yeah. And, and that essence 
it's partly fundamental and it's partly unique to each individual, their essence. Yeah. And when you know what your essence is, you've got that, you got that solid mountain. Yeah. That does take time though, doesn't it? It does take time, but I mean, how boring it would be to reach that point at the age of 20. I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do with the rest of your life? No, I'm exaggerating. Some people discover exactly what they were appear to be put on this planet for at a very young age and just carry on in exactly that way, often to the benefit of humanity. So yeah. I've got a I've got a younger brother who's a musician. He's a professional musician. He knew at like the age of eleven. Yeah. It's like that's what I'm doing. And my mom would be like, Don't you think you might want to like learn accounting or something just in case? He's like, No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched a series on Netflix that I love called The Queen's Gambit. I don't know if you've come across that. You're the second person to mention it in the space of about two weeks. Okay. Well, I really, 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 really enjoyed it. It's about chess. I don't play chess. I don't really know much about chess at all. But it is an example of somebody who at a very, very young age, it's almost like she was born with chess ingrained in her. It's, a, it's fiction, but of course we know this does happen. We know people like this. So I think that's why it's part one of the reasons such a compelling story. Going back to the to the Yangsheng, you know, in the Chinese tradition, there's a lot within the Yangsheng and and within the medicine. There's a lot of weird and mystical and wacky stuff. Even take somebody like Sun Samyao, you know, for for all his incredible down to earth wisdom about the basics of life. There's also, you know, I think it's him who said, you know, if a woman is in delayed labor, burn the underpants and pubic hair of the father of the child and feed it to her as a medicine. I'm not really into that, you know, or don't cut your toenails on a Wednesday when the moon is rising in the east or whatever. I believe that fundamentally, Yangsheng, the teachings of how to live a healthy, happy and as long as possible human life, are really very basic. They're real common sense. And they have an immense amount to offer the world, especially when health advice is so, you know, with the internet, as you mentioned about diet, it's so confusing to people with so many different arguments and takes and beliefs and, and, and so on, that to have the kind of common sense and time-tested understanding of this incredible two-and-a-half-thousand-year tradition is a real treasure. And it's something that I feel our profession, I almost feel it's the, well, I don't have to feel it. It's what the Neijing said. It's the highest level of the Chinese medicine profession, actually, is not the treatment of disease, however wonderful that is but it's the teaching of how to how to live that's wonderful. So that was the thinking behind the book. And, you know, I'd love it if I could wave my magic, magic wand. Every Chinese medicine clinic would be an education center as much as it is a treatment center. What would you teach at that education center? What would that look like? I actually set up a, a natural health education center nearly 40 years ago. 
Brighton Natural Health Center, which, you know, from the very early days was teaching yoga, tai chi, meditation, diet. So it it would be like that. It would it would invite patients to to come to sessions where those things were taught, those things were discussed. I mean, some of it is so tragically obvious. <laughs> there was a, a general practice, a Western medical general practice in uh, in Britain that decided to start a walking group for uh, its diabetes patients. Every day, half an hour walk, somebody led it. They evaluated the results after the month, after a month. The benefits from simply not just walking, but of being outside, walking through the park, seeing trees, being in nature, and being in a social group. The results were so dramatic in terms of reduction in medication and improvement in health status and improvement in quality of life. If you could have put that in a pill, <laughs> you know, it would have made a billion, hundred billion dollars. So interventions don't have to be complex. It can be very simple. Easing people towards better diet, easing people towards more movement, easing people towards methods of gaining some control over chaotic emotional states. These can be, the effects can be so dramatic. I'm just thinking, and maybe because I'm an American and, and we tend to do things in extreme. We're all about extremes. I hear you use the words easing people towards, easing them towards food, easing them towards movement, easing them towards healthy social interactions. We don't often think about the word ease in terms of something that's worthwhile, useful, helpful, and good for your health. I'm just, I'm really struck by listening to you in this moment of how most people, I think, at least in my country, would take the idea of, well, you know, let's just ease you from this to that. I don't know if that's going to be an easy sell. I mean, I listen to it and I go, wow, thank you. Oh, the pressure's off. Well, maybe I can just mention the latest project that I'm working on because it's very much exactly in this field. So I've been working with a couple of colleagues on an app. It's based on the original... You are an entrepreneur. Look at you. Yeah, I know. It's just the next, it's did, the next level of publishing. I did say to the guy who proposed it to me, no, I'm done with projects, but I, I realized it was something that I really feel very passionate about. So it was based on the person who, my friend Tom, told me about uh, a physiotherapist's app. So I don't know if you, do you have physiotherapists in the state? The, uh, oh, yes. Physical yes, therapy. Yeah. Yes, we do. So it's so backward. It used to be so, well, it's still so backward in Britain. You'd go with a problem and they'd give you a, you know, a 50 times photocopied sheet of, of line drawings of exercises to do in a rubber band, you know, and that go away and do this. So somebody developed an app where they filmed, they made like, 100, 150 videos of exercises. And the patient could download a free version of the app and the physiotherapist could prescribe 
five videos and say, do these, do them every day, record when you've done them. So we've taken that with Yangsheng and we've created videos and audios of Qigong movements, self-massage, self-acupressure, meditation, diet recipes for different TCM patterns. So it's like a library of, you know, short health practices. Mm -hmm. And it's interactive. Well, what it is is that the practitioner will pay to have access to this, you know, a small monthly fee. The patient will download the free version of the app and the practitioner can say, look, I want you to do these exercises five times a day, you know, here are some changes to the to diet you could try, some recipes, you can do these recipes. You can, oh, you've got a shoulder problem, here's some self-massage you can do, and so on. So it's it's to help practitioners offer health advice to patients. Can I mention the name of it? Yo, please, yeah. This sounds like a fantastic research. Please let us know. Yeah, no, let us know all about this. So it's the app. We've got a website now already. It's not quite launched, the app. The website is called Jing, J-I-N-G, jingselfcare.com. So people can already go to the website. They can look at some of the material that we've got, and they can sign up to be informed when the app is up and running. We think it takes lots of boxes because apart from anything else, busy practitioners don't have time necessary or even have the expertise to show whatever it is, Qigong practice for calming the mind or for developing healthy hips or you know, all these kinds of things. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. I'll make sure that that link is on the show notes page. So all y'all's listening to this right now, you could just go right to the show notes page and click on that. I love this idea, Peter. And I know that I have spent way too much time in my clinic trying to teach people certain movements. Sometimes it's helpful, but then they get home and and they don't remember or they just forget to do it. I mean, the nice thing about an app, it'll probably have a little reminder on there. Hey, time to do your... Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and congratulations. Yeah, like done. a wife in it, right? It's like my wife is nagging me all the time. Do yeah. this, do that, right? Yeah. So it's, it, it like comes in with a built-in Chinese wife. So that'd be nice. Well, I don't, you know, we don't want to nag people. Just a reminder. And then maybe a pat on the back. Oh, you know, you've done, you've done your exercises seven times this week. Well done. You get a gold star, you know. Yes, people well, like, I, I take people the like that. that you know. Somebody loves me. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a sign the practitioner, and it comes from the practitioner, and the practitioner can put their own um, name on the app and they can put their own details. So it also acts as promotion for the practitioner. That sounds really, really helpful. That sounds super helpful. I, In my practice, there's a few things that I've found I used to say to patients all the time, and, and over time I've learned to automate some of those into like little audio courses and things. So I can just say, Hey, look, rather than spend the next 20 minutes talking to you about this, just go to my website and it's right here. So that sounds like a fantastic resource. When do you think it'll launch? Do you have a, well, unfortunately, you know, we heard that the, it's pretty nearly finished, but the developer who's doing the kind of tech development in Pakistan is down with COVID. So we're not quite sure how ill he is, how sick he is, and how 
how much that affects the development. I mean, it's a small company, so they'll probably find somebody else. So we were going to say, you know, we would have been able to say it'll be launched in about three weeks. So there's some slight uncertainty about that at the moment. Yep. All right. Well, people can go to the website and get some updates. That sounds fantastic. Do you have other projects going on besides this? Was this this is the main thing at this moment? Well, the project that I've just nearly completed, I mentioned, is I have written my memoirs and sort of connected in or shoehorned in a stack of short stories. So it's a combination of memoirs and short stories that I'm due to publish. And the because it's a bit of a narcissistic project to write about me, <laughs> I'm going to, I've decided I'm going to sell it as an ebook and I'm going to donate the profits to I set up with some other friends, I set up a, a charity for a tree planting charity. I, you know, I wanted to ask you about that. I'm glad that you bring it up because I've seen that you have this uh, forestry project. Yeah, it's called the Chinese Medicine Forestry Trust. It was a response of a small, of four of us, four friends last year who we were all sharing this feeling of being overwhelmed by the constant news of the degradation of the planet. You know, this awful news about environmental collapse, species uh, extinction, the pollution of seas, oh, climate change, just despair and grief, really. One antidote to those feelings is to pick something and act, to do something positive, both for our own mental health and for its effects. So we, we all love trees, so we decided we set up this charitable trust that seeks to draw in money from the global Chinese medicine community and just funnel it straight into three international organizations that are planting trees and protecting forests right through the world so it's very very simple there's nothing complex about it so that's an you know it's a constant appeal to chinese medicine businesses practitioners students to just chip in with a bit of money and in the knowledge that you know if you, if you donate ten dollars a month you can go to bed knowing that every month you're planting 10 trees which <laughs> is kind of a remarkable feeling really Doing what you can to help. Yeah, doing what you can to help. Because planting trees is its a kind of win-win-win thing to do. It ticks many boxes. You know? And it's truly something that we do not do for ourselves. We do it for our children, and we do it for our children's children. I mean, the act of planting a tree is probably one of the most generous things I, I think that anybody can do in this world. Yeah. And, of course, that's abstract. I mean, I've not – I've Last year, I planted a small plum tree in my garden, and I can't tell you how damn good I feel about it. I mean, to planting your own tree, if you have a chance, is just incredible. So, I, I'm looking out at a Japanese maple that I put in this past summer. It sits right outside my window here, and I get to like watch it through the seasons. So is it in a pot or in the earth? It's, uh, it's in the earth. Okay, because I planted one in a pot. It will go into the earth eventually, but yeah. 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 That's great. Wonderful. I will make sure that a link to that is up on the show notes page as well. Thank you. So people can check that. Thank you. Thanks for this time today. 
Thank you for all of your curiosity and all the nudges that you followed. You're a person who's made our medicine, helped to make our medicine rich and helped to make it accessible to so many people. You know, and when, when you started out, there weren't that many people that were doing this. And, uh, you know, the, the work that you've done has helped generations of people now. It's nice to hear you say that. Thank you. Yep. Uh, before we wind this down, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about uh, about Yangsheng or or medicine or just anything that's on your mind? Well, the only thing that pops up, I didn't have anything really, is that when we want to take care of ourselves, particularly we've been sick, we have to be a bit committed and we have to be a bit serious. But remember that another part of Yangsheng is laughter, fun, love, parties, dancing. <laughs> we mustn't get too serious. Balance, you know, that's, that's something really important to me. So that's probably the last thing I'd say. Uh, apart from thank you for the opportunity and thank you for what you're doing. You've obviously built up quite a library of these talks, and that's a wonderful resource. I'm a bit like you in that way. I got a hunch one day, and I was just curious to see where it would go. I've been very surprised to see where it's gone. I've been immensely grateful that I've had this opportunity that I can sit down with so many people, uh, from people that are well-known to people that no one has ever heard of because they're just busy being, you know, the craftsperson that they are in their clinic. They're a treasure. Those people are a great they treasure. Such a treasure. Yeah. And, and I feel so mm -hmm. fortunate that I'm living in a time where we can have things like podcasts that makes it easy. It's like you're a writer, so you know this. Writing a story is hard. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes, it takes sweat. It's not easy, but sitting down and having a conversation, well, you know, we're social animals and we do that as naturally as drinking a cup of tea. And so I'm, I'm deeply grateful to the technology that is here at this time because it, it helps us to connect the voices of our community in a way that, that, that before you had to be literate, you had to be able to read and you had to have the initiative to be able to write. And, and so this audio thing opens up a, a whole different domain. I've, I've been lucky to be able to uh, have my curiosity lead me here. So, so thanks for joining me today. And thank you for bringing Jing to us. I'm looking forward to uh, getting it on my phone. Great. Can't wait to see it. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye now. It seems to me that generativity, creating something that has not previously existed, doing something that you see as repairing a hole in the world, is both a generous and a courageous act. We can never know in advance if our efforts will pay off. We find many ways of doing it wrong on the way to getting it right. But like with any practice, persistence, patience, and a willingness to learn as we go can, over the course of decades, change the trajectory of lives. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, 
If you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.